Malachi chapter 1, it's the last book in your Old Testament. Last week we had our Malachi book sermon, the overview of all that Malachi entails. And now that we have looked at the entire book, we're going to zero in on Malachi. We're going to look at it verse by verse as we dig deep into what Malachi, the prophet, was attempting to tell the nation of Israel. This morning we will read verses 1 through 5 of Malachi 1. Please look at your Bibles as I read this morning. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau. And laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord had indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Malachi is a prophecy regarding worship. Over the next many messages, we will be confronted with how it is that we worship. This book will question our motives in worship, our methods in worship, and it will even question our manner of worship. But today, as is reflected in the first five verses of Malachi chapter 1, I have a different question that I'd like to ask you. The question is this, what is it that compels your worship to God? What is it that motivates your worship? See, many of us come every week to this building. For some of us, we come numerous times per week to this building. And we do so with a purpose. That purpose, as is expressed, is to worship God. We call this a Sunday morning worship service. An opportunity for us to worship God. We know that God is worthy of our worship. And we know that we are supposed to meet together. We are not supposed to forsake the assembling of ourselves. We are intended to become a body fitly framed together. Unified in Christ. We know that God is God. And therefore he, we need no reason to worship him. We can worship him simply because he is worthy of our worship. We can worship him simply because of who he is. He is God. Even now as we are in a worship service, we are seeking to offer God worship based on the reality of who he is. But my question is, what compels you to worship? We come and we worship God because God's worthy. We come and we worship God because of who he is. But what compels you in your worship? See, as God began his message to the people of Israel through the prophet Malachi, he did so by digging down to the very foundation of their worship, by digging down to the very motivation, what compelled them, their very compulsion to worship God. And by digging down and exposing this foundation, he sought to correct many of the flaws that were found on Israel's foundation of their worship. Correcting the very roots 
of their worship, correcting the very motivations with which they approached God. Not just their actions, but their perspective. Not just what they did, but why they did it. And so I invite us to do the same this morning. To dig down to the very foundations of our worship. To question not just what we're doing. We've been doing a lot of that in Sunday school. But why we're doing it. What compels our worship? What brings us here every week? And as we do so, we'll find that our compulsion should not just be coming, fulfilling obligations, but should be coming in such a way that is entirely acceptable to God. We'll look at two points this morning. The first point is in Malachi 1, 1 and 2, and it's simply this. God loves you. What is your motivation as we think about this? Consider first of all that God loves you. Notice again verses 1 and 2. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? This statement can almost be labeled as cliche in Christian culture, can it not? God loves you. We hear it all the time. We hear it everywhere. God loves you. We see it on signs. We see it on billboards. We see it on websites. God loves you. So it's important as we consider the concept of God's love to first remind ourselves of the biblical definition of love. What is love? See, we need to understand that. Once we understand that, then we can understand the conflict within this passage. And once we understand the conflict within the passage, then we can apply it to ourselves appropriately. We don't want to get these things out of order. So we'll define ourselves, we'll look at it in context, then we'll apply first the biblical definition of love. Why not? Let's get interactive this morning. As we've memorized it, this was months ago, so many of you probably weren't here, can anyone give me the biblical definition of love? Rosie. Very good. An unconditional choice to do what is best for the one who is loved, regardless of self-interest or circumstances. That's a good biblical definition of love. An unconditional choice to do what is best for the one who is loved, regardless of self-interest and regardless of circumstances. Being loved is not the same as being worthy of love. You don't have to be worthy of love to be loved, nor do you have to find someone worthy of love in order to love them. Being loved is about a conscious choice to place one's love upon another. We need to remember that. We need to remember what love is, that it is a choice, that it has nothing necessarily to do with worthiness as we consider what God is telling Israel. Now let's look at it in the context. We need to understand that the conflict between God and Israel here is taking place around this understanding of love. See, God has stated his love for the people of Israel. Israel could read of God's love in the scriptures. Israel could understand God's love through his dealings with them. They could flip back in their Bibles. I guess they couldn't because it was probably a scroll. They could unroll that scroll and get to the point where God redeemed them from Egypt. They could unroll that scroll and get to the point where God brought them through the Red Sea, where God fed them manna in the wilderness, where God gave them cities that were not theirs. 
They could continue to unroll that scroll and see how God gave them great victories over the Amalekites, over the Midianites, over the Edomites, over the Philistines throughout their years. They can read of God's love for them in giving them a king like King David. They can read for God's love for them by their great, His great long-suffering for them. They could even read of God's love for them in His chastening. How God was faithful to His promises. But notice God's response to them when they ask Him, Wherein hast thou loved us? That's their response. God says, I've loved you. They say, God, wherein? Prove it. Where are your evidences of love? See, Israel challenged the love of God. They, it was a challenge rooted in their misunderstanding of the nature of love. Israel thought that love meant, God, you should be doing good things for me. God, you should be incurring my favor. And as Israel stood there in the days of Malachi, we recall saying that it was probably around the time of Nehemiah, Either Nehemiah was in Babylon at the time or he had just passed off the scene right near the end of the biblical record of the Old Testament. And as we consider this time, Israel was weak. They had just returned from, well, it had been some time now, but they had returned from 70 years in captivity in a land filled with pagan unbelievers. They had very little national identity. They were still under the leadership of the Persian Empire. They were not autonomous. They were weak they had no military. They had minimal leadership. And as they saw the circumstances around them, they said, God, where's your love? I don't see your love. Because they didn't understand what God's love was. They thought that if God loves me, then good things are going to be happening to me. And they forgot that love is not always doing good to a person. Love is doing what's best for a person. Love is not always doing what's good for a person. Love is doing what's best for a person. And so God responds and he vindicates his love at the end of verse 2. He says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I love Jacob. I love this. I love the fact that when God is going to prove his love to Israel, he doesn't go to the Red Sea. He doesn't go to the manna in the wilderness. He doesn't go to the Ten Commandments. He doesn't go to all of the favor wherein he drove out the people from the land of Canaan and gave them houses that were not theirs and fields that were already planted that were not theirs and cities with walls already around them. He didn't go to the fact that Jericho fell when they cried out unto the Lord. He goes back to choosing Jacob over Esau. He says, was not Esau, Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob. He says that his love for them was not proven by the circumstances therein. His love for them was proven by the promises he made to them and how faithful he had been to live out those promises, to be faithful to those promises. Now, as we do so, it is extremely important that we take some time to understand the dynamics of the relationship surrounding Jehovah God, Jacob, and Esau. I told you a few weeks ago, many weeks ago now, that I wanted to come back to Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 because I didn't feel as though I explained them properly. Well, today is going to go a long way toward that end. 
And it, uh, I'm actually going to be doing a little bit more reading here than perhaps I might normally do because it's very important that we express this properly. We need to understand, first of all, that the interaction between God, Jacob, and Esau was not detailing account, an account of personal salvation, but of covenantal blessing. God was dealing with the covenant. He was not dealing with individual salvation. And the key to understanding this is, in fact, in Romans chapter 9. Please turn there with me. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I don't always ask you to turn. A lot of times I'll just read passages of Scripture. But it's very important that we look at this together. We're going to walk through this passage. Let me read the whole passage that I want to speak of, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll walk through it a little bit. Paul says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. We'll stop there and we'll continue in just a moment. By this point in the book of Romans, Paul is answering a question concerning the believers in Rome and particularly their concern as Christians regarding the nation of Israel. Since the church is to inherit the spiritual blessings of Abraham, as Paul has been teaching, namely personal righteousness by faith, there was teaching circulating that stated that Israel had been set aside or Israel had been replaced by God's church. This is still, in fact, circulating. It's very strong today. We see this in covenant theology. We see this in a theology called replacement theology. It's rather strong in the Reformed movement, and I believe, based upon Scripture, that it is in error. Following Paul's exposition on the need and the nature of salvation, then the privileges and expectations of salvation found in Romans chapters 1 through 8, he turns his attention to this issue, to this controversy, in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans 9, 1 through 9 fall out in this manner. We've read through verse 5. Paul states his desire that he would be accursed from, his, from God if only the nation of Israel would accept their Messiah. Now, obviously, this is an impossible desire. As Paul had just finished in Romans 8, asserting that the believer has assurance of their salvation, that they are, in fact, secure in their salvation. But he says, as we understand in verse 3, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. It's reflecting his great desire that the nation of Israel would come to God. He clarifies after this that according to the flesh, Paul's kinsmen are all Israelites. And unto this physical group of people, this physical group Israel pertains the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. All of those things pertain to the physical nation of Israel. This physical group of people were given these privileges by God. But God is just. And as such, God will not reward the wicked for their wickedness. So while God had promised all of these physical blessings to Israel, Israel had done wickedly. 
So while all who are of Israel have the privilege of the promises under the covenants, and while many of the physical blessings of the Abrahamic covenant have been extended to the physical seed of Israel, those privileges are only fully realized by those who enter into that spiritual covenant, the same spiritual covenant that was entered into by Abraham, Isaac, and then Israel, and that is belief in God unto righteousness. And so there are physical blessings and there are spiritual blessings. There are physical promises and there are spiritual promises. Paul states that while all Israelites, uh, excuse me, while they are all Israelites, that doesn't make them heirs to the full covenant promises of Israel. Verse 6 says, Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are all seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, they are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. We'll pick up there in a little bit. So Isaac was the son of Abraham that God divinely chose according to his good pleasure, to bestow the physical blessings of the covenant and perpetuate the offer of full spiritual blessing through faith. This did not automatically mean that Isaac was saved. His entrance into the physical covenant of God did not automatically save his soul, but only chose him as the conduit through whom the covenant would continue. So we have this difference between the physical and the spiritual. All those in Israel had the opportunity as children of the covenant to enter in, yet they must still willfully exercise their hearts toward that end. And so God chose Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him to righteousness. God chose Isaac as the seed through which that physical covenant would continue to perpetuate. Isaac still had the responsibility, though he was the child of the covenant, to spiritually enter into faith in God. That brings us to Esau and Jacob. In Genesis 25, 23, while, while Rebekah, Isaac's wife, was still pregnant, God appeared unto her and told her that there were two nations in her womb. And she, he prophesied to her that the elder would serve the younger. At this moment, at the moment when he prophesied that, God made a judicial declaration, a judicial decision that his good pleasure, uh, according to his good pleasure, that Jacob was the child that God had chosen to perpetuate his covenant according to his faithfulness to Abraham. He had made a promise to Abraham and he was going to fulfill that promise. And he chose Isaac and then he chose Jacob, the younger, to fulfill that promise. Again, there is no statement of salvation here. It was still Jacob's responsibility either to accept or to reject the covenant for himself and to enter either into the fullness of the covenantal blessings by faith or not and therefore be blessed with faithful Abraham. But God had chosen to place his love upon Jacob and not upon Esau in order to keep the covenant, to perpetuate the covenant from seed to seed. 
And so the love of God toward Jacob in choosing him had nothing to do with what Jacob had done, nothing even to do with what Jacob would do, had everything to do with God choosing to place his love upon Jacob. Pick up with me as we, where we were in verse 10 of Romans 9. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Paul continues in that passage to vindicate God. We're not going to continue past verse 13. So God judiciously placed his love upon Jacob. Regardless of what Jacob had done, because he hadn't done anything yet, he wasn't born. Or regardless of what Jacob would do. Similarly, God had chosen to then reject Esau as the child of the covenant. Not based upon anything he had done or anything that he had not done, but because he chose to. Now this rejection did not mean that Esau and his descendants could not be saved. It does not mean that they could not believe in God by faith unto salvation. It simply means that God's promises to Abraham, the covenantal blessings, the physical blessings, would not be perpetuated through Esau. And it was chosen simply because God chose to place his love upon Jacob. That Jacob would be the one through whom the seed was perpetuated. God was not damning Esau to hell here. Though, as we continue to see Esau's life, the only description we have of him was his name being Edom. His name being changed to Edom on the day when he sold his birthright. Hebrews 12.6 calls him a profane man for having despised his birthright. And so we do see that his life was one that was not pleasing to God. And so God, in his infinite and sovereign wisdom and goodness, demonstrated the greatest of love for Jacob and all of his seed, Jacob's name being changed to Israel, Israel and all of Israel's seed, when he chose them to be the family through which God would perform his promises unto Abraham and accept those by faith. I trust that you see as well that this passage is not talking about God necessarily electing people to heaven or to hell, but rather God electing those who would faithfully carry his promises from generation to generation. And this is the entire context of Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's not talking about God damning people to hell and God choosing others for heaven. It's speaking of the Israelitish context in which these Roman believers were worried we're wondering, has God just set Israel aside? Is Israel now out of the picture because the church is here? Is Israel now just gone? All of those promises that God made to Abraham, are we inheriting them so that physical Israel, all of these years thinking they were going to have these, they're all gone? Paul says, no, that's not the case. And so God's dealings with Israel, whereby he sovereignly placed his love upon them outside of any merit or action on their part is a parallel. It's a type, if you will, of God's love for the world under grace, whereby God has sovereignly chosen to place his love upon the world outside of any merit or outside of any action on their part. 
just as each Israelite had to choose to enter into the fullness of God's covenant by faith in the love that God had shown, so too every person bears within his own heart the responsibility of responding to the love of God through Christ and accepting that love by faith unto salvation. And notice I say it's a parallel. The church is grafted into the blessings of Abraham, as is taught in Romans 11. The church receives the same spiritual inheritance, and yet God has been faithful to preserve the physical seed of Israel as well until such time as the seed might inherit the physical and literal blessings that God had promised unto Abraham so many years ago. God did not sovereignly redefine what it meant to be the seed of Abraham or redefine what it meant to be uh, a promise when he promised Abraham that they would inherit the land of Canaan. He simply grafted us into the spiritual promises of Abraham. Extremely complicated topic. I trust and hope that this was somewhat helpful to you. But as we come back to the passage, please turn with me back to Malachi. More study should probably be done in that passage, and I'll leave it to you to do so. Please come with questions if you have any until we get there in our preaching. In a similar way that God loved Jacob, we see God loves the world. If we take the subculture of Israel, God loved Israel, He redeemed Israel, all of Israel was ushered into this covenant. And yet the only ones who would receive the fullest blessing of the covenant were those who would then love mercy, do justice, walk humbly with their God. So too, God has paid the penalty for the world, redeemed the world, and yet only those who believe on Christ become recipients of the full blessing. And as we consider this, and we consider our topic here, God loves you. Let's understand the practical applications for this first point today. First, consider the God that we serve. He's the creator of all that is. He's the sustainer of all that is. He knows who we are. He is just. He is righteous. He is holy. He is supreme. He is worthy of honor. He's worthy of glory. He's worthy of praise. Then consider us. Consider mankind. We have rebelled against God in pride. We have fallen short of God's righteousness. We have rejected God's authority. Even those who have accepted Christ in the room today are justified in the eyes of God only through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We still have a sin nature that works in constant opposition to the Spirit of God in our lives. We know the scriptures, Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that we are all of as an unclean thing, that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, that we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. We know, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10-13, that there is none righteous, no, not one, that there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are altogether become unprofitable, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. All of these verses speak of us from a worldly perspective. You before God. You without God. Now consider the events as they have taken place in, in the history of mankind. 
Man is made in unconfirmed holiness. Man then rebels against God's one prohibition, a prohibition which withheld nothing from him of blessing, but simply was there to prove his love for God. God, in his justice, condemns man to an eternal condemnation in the lake of fire, prepared specifically for the devil and his angels. Yet God places to choose his love upon man, not for what man had done, not for what man would do, but simply because God chose to love man. God divinely pursued man's redemption. God redeemed man through his son, Jesus Christ. And then men, recognizing that redemption through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, respond to God, reciprocate his love through belief on the name of Jesus Christ for salvation. Do you see the parallel? See, it was not rebellious man who after falling in his sin and losing out on all the blessings of relationship with God, got on his knees and begged God for reconciliation. It was not man who came back to God after man had failed. It was not man. Man rebelled against God and liked it. Man rebelled against God and stayed there. It was God who came to man and said, I love you. The proper definition of biblical love, an unconditional choice to do what is best for the one who is loved regardless of self-interest or circumstances. God didn't look upon you and say, I loved you because you did good. I loved you because you loved me first. I loved you because you want me back. God looked at men who were rebellious against him and said, I love you. God looked at men who hated him and said, I love you. And I am going to pursue my love till my very death to redeem you from your sin. Thus we see the parallel. Just as Jacob was not one who earned favor with God in order to have God's love placed upon him, so too the world did not earn favor with God before God placed his love upon the world. By extension, just as God's love and favor did not secure entrance into the spiritual blessings of Abraham, Abraham was not declared righteous until years after God told him that he would make of him a nation. In the same way, God's love and favor upon the world do not secure the world's entrance into spiritual blessings. Just because God has placed his love upon the world, just because God placed his love upon Jacob, did not secure their eternal salvation and spiritual blessing. And in all of this, we see the beauty and simplicity, yet depth, of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When you recognize all that mankind did, has done, is doing, will do in opposition to God, that verse should amaze you again and again. And as if we don't have enough to think about, let's finish off the passage. We first saw God loves us, verses 1 and 2. God loves you. God loves me. God loves Jacob. Let's see, secondly, 
God's love demands proper worship. We recall the question I asked at the beginning. Why are you doing what you're doing? What compels you to worship? Everything we've just talked about for the past 25, 30 minutes, that should be it. That should be your compulsion. That should be what drives you. Recognizing what God has done for you should compel you. Esau, as we see in verses 3 through 5, confirmed God's rejection of him through his own profane choices. He rejected his birthright, which was not simply wealth, but also the divine representation of his family before God. By rejecting his birthright, he failed to show God God's own worth and was thus profane in his worship to God. Over the next many hundreds of years, the nation of Edom, which would come out of the lineage of Esau, would stand in dramatic opposition to God's people. They would oppose the nation of Israel. They would persecute the nation of Israel. They would attack the nation of Israel. God uses this reality to demonstrate how much God's love placed upon Israel benefited them in the eyes of God. And yet for all of this benefit, for all of these blessings, Israel failed to give God the worth that was due to his name through his love. God placed his love upon them, and by nature of that love, if God had never done anything else for Israel throughout all of their history, the very nature of God's love placed upon them makes him worthy of their unconditional worship to him. And yet in verse 5, God states that his worship will be vindicated. His worth will be vindicated. His love will be vindicated. He will receive the worth that is due unto his name. I may put it this way. God will receive proper worship. The love that God has for his own is vindicated. Notice in verse 5. Excuse me, the end of verse 4. They shall build, but I will throw down. They shall call them the border of wickedness, the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. God's love is vindicated as he demonstrates those who have rejected his love. As he demonstrates the destruction of those who rejected his love. And when the people of God's covenant see the destruction of their enemies, God's love will be vindicated and the people will finally declare, as it says in verse 5, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. As we close, I ask, I speak directly to the born again believer in the room today. God has poured out his love upon you. And that love has been fully realized in your heart through salvation. The very fullness of all the spiritual blessings of God is yours the moment you believed on Christ. God's love certainly will be magnified on the day all of the redeemed stand in heaven and sing the respective songs of redemption. According to Revelation 15.3, Israel will sing the song of Moses. The church will sing the song of the Lamb. God's love will eternally be magnified on the day that the unbelieving world stands before God in judgment and declares themselves without excuse because of the testimony of God in creation, in their conscience, and in the word of God. And so one day God's worth will be vindicated in us as well as in those who are unbelieving. But you and I, as the redeemed of the Lord, 
have the distinct privilege and responsibility of giving God the glory that is due unto Him right now. Because we have seen God's love. We have seen God's glory. And we have responded to it. My exhortation to you this morning is this. Don't rob God of that glory. Don't strip Him of His worth in this life. God is worthy of our worship. And one day, God's love will be vindicated. We should never hesitate to proclaim God's worth. We should never hesitate to live out God's worth. We began with a question. What compels you to worship? When you hear it, or when you read the words, God's, God loves you. Is that phrase cliche in your mind? Or does it ring in your spirit as the very compulsion for which you are devoted? The very compulsion for your worship. God is worthy of proper worship. God is worthy of whatever sacrifices, whatever amount of time, whatever amount of effort, whatever material sacrifices he asks in order to show the world the worth of our God. What compels your worship this morning? Is your worship properly compelled? If not, I invite you to spend some time talking with God today. Allow the Holy Spirit to work in your heart to guide you and direct you into the ways in which your worship can and should be properly compelled in order that we in this life can give God the glory that's due unto His name. Let's pray.